Welcome to another episode of the Global's podcast series. Svetlana Dotsenko here. Uh, she will be talking about how AI and blockchain can improve university research. So if you would uh, put your hands together for Svetlana. Thank you very much. Yes, and so with that, let me tell you a little bit about my topic. So I have just been based in uh, Boston for 12 years, and I have just moved to Berlin recently, haven't opened my company here in April. And so I will just walk you through some of my work with the universities around commercialization. So since we do have the audience here that is uh, you know, fairly technologically savvy, so I also just spend more time talking about how can recent innovations really improve university research and help us commercialize this more. Uh, the reason why I'm interested in this topic was my grandmother had diabetes. So for the last 10 years of her life, every single day she had to prick her skin with a needle, delivering insulin, the drug that regulates the supply of sugar in the body. And this process was truly traumatic because even if she missed one injection, she could go into a diabetic coma and just fall down on the street. So her diabetes was really a nightmare for herself and for her family, and yet she was one of the lucky ones. Before the invention of the diabetes, apparently the prevailing treatment was just a starvation diet. And that's exactly what you think it is. So the patients were just not allowed to have any food, basically until their body would just shut down because it did not have enough calories. And diabetes is a disease that we have millions of people around the world that suffer from it today. And yet for the first time, so the actual cure for diabetes was actually invented uh, here in Berlin in a laboratory. So a researcher whose name was Paul Langenhans has actually invented the cells uh, that control the supply of the insulin in the body. And so it has happened here in, here in the city. And I mean, of course, Berlin has had its reputation as a technological hub for a really, really, truly long time. However, the other problem is that there has actually been, can I just ask you to help me scroll onto the next slide, or maybe just go onto the next slide there, if that would be easier. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, if we can maybe just go down. Yes, there we go. So this is Paul Langehans. So he is the gentleman that has actually invented the insulin cells. Uh, in, in the body, but then between his invention and the next slide, uh, the idea that we'll be trying to show is that there has actually been 50 years between the time when he has invented those insulin cells and that insulin actually became commercially available. And so there was really quite a lot of steps in between. So this research had to be continued first in London, then at the University of Toronto. And then finally, it took the academic industry collaboration with Eli Lilly, a pharmaceutical company, so that the insulin could finally become available to the people. Um, and so today, I want to welcome you to Berlin. So let's go on to the next slide. Uh, so it sounds like a lot of you are here already, and Berlin, again, is drawing many of us here because this is the hub of the technological innovation. So, for example, there are actually 40 Nobel Prize laureates and winners that have had affiliation with the universities here in Berlin. I mean, many of you, I'm sure, know of the universities here in Berlin, right? So there are four public research universities that are, have the universal international reputation. There are also 30 private institutions that uh, provide abilities for professional development that help people grow. 
And the question that I would like to pose for you here today, I think especially for those of you that are still figuring out what to do next, <laughs> is how can we take advantage of all this technology that is already there, that has already been developed at the universities here in Berlin and Germany and Europe and the US, wherever, <laughs> right? Worldwide, just how can we make sure that this real science actually goes somewhere, that it actually goes to the market? So in the current world, it's only 5% of innovation that ever makes it to market, okay? So out of all the research that ever takes place at the university, we only have this tiny sliver of innovation that actually goes somewhere. And I think it's a shame. And just like in the case with diabetes, so I told you that it took about 50 years for this innovation to actually reach the patients that needed it so much. The typical case with innovation is actually 30 years. So that's how long it take us, takes us to get anywhere from the brilliant discovery until we actually get it into the hands of people. And once again, all of us here are interested in commercialization, are interested in innovation, so I think we can change it. And in order to do that, I believe we have three main challenges that prevent this academic and the industry collaboration. So I'll talk about them a little bit in a little bit more detail. So the first one is just data. How do we even know what people do at the university <laughs> if we are not actually at the university, right? The professors themselves, um, you know, are not necessarily sharing their research in a way that is very obvious to the people outside of the university, to the innovation ecosystem. So we'll talk about some of the ways in which um, this can be improved. And the second question is, well, who actually has the money? What funding do the research groups have at the moment and what are they working on now? So wh which projects can we still join? Which projects can we still influence? Which projects can we still help them develop? And that's the second issue that in my opinion uh, can really improve this collaborations and help us get products to the market. And the third one is trust. So because academic and industry collaboration do have an unfortunate reputation for sometimes lacking scientific integrity. Right? There are all sorts of studies going on and sometimes we want to see one outcome more than we want to see the other. So what can we do in order to really make sure that our science is productive so it gets out of the universities, it works on the real problem, and at the same time it adheres to the standards of the scientific integrity. So if we talk about the first challenge, the first challenge is data. And our question here is how can we actually get the data about professors and the innovations that take place at those universities? So I already told you that previous to coming to Berlin, I've spent 12 years in Boston. And Boston, of course, is uh, the place in the United States that is perhaps the most academically advanced. So Boston has about 74 universities there, a lot of wonderful research, everything is happening all over the place. So after my graduation, I was at the Harvard University and I went to the people in the government department, which happens to be Harvard's largest department as well. So in that place, there is so much fantastic research going on, right? So it really is on the forefront of the political science in the world. So there are so many professors, there are so many students on both the undergraduate and the graduate level. And the thing is, <laughs> I mean, it's never too much for a good thing when we talk about science, but the truth is it becomes even difficult to navigate this landscape and to actually understand who is doing what, okay? And so in the very beginning, the way my project has started was I have actually approached the leadership of the government department and asked them if they think that's a problem at all. And it turned out that at the time, they were actually trying to make sure that the students, just the students in the department, are actually working on more projects together with the professors. 
Now, the problem is, you know, professors are generally busy people, and Harvard professors don't even get me started on that, right? Very, very busy people. So we cannot just come to them and say, hey, professor, will we just spend half a day typing the information into my system, right? The answer is clearly going to be no. <laughs> However, what we can do is take a lot of the information that is already there, and so we can use the technology, I mean, not even such complicated technology, right, in order to gather this information. So what we have started doing was essentially going to the sources where we already had this information about the professors and just putting it together very simply with the help of a very simple crawler. So for example, we took the data about which courses have they taught in the past, right? And universities have that data, you know, it's readily available. So then we also took the information about which publications have they created, right? So what have they worked on in the past? Which students have they advised, you know? And then we also looked at how much money they had, and I'll talk more about this later. And the idea is that even if one of those sources is missing, right? I mean, many of you might have looked at university websites, they're just utterly useless, right? So the information there is often very out of date. But the point is, even if one of those sources is bad, across five of them, we can usually get a fairly good consistent picture of like what is every faculty member actually doing at the moment. And the plus is we really don't need them to do anything. So that has helped us get the actual buy-in from the university, right? Once you tell somebody that they don't need to do anything, they're usually your friend. So we have started doing this program and we have uh, tested this with the students at first just in one department and in just the first half a year of the program we're able to double the research activity of the students that have actually started the projects with the professor in the department. So the leadership was very happy with us, they said great, how about we then also involve the data from the uh, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, which is basically Harvard's name for the research part of the university, as opposed to the professional schools. So we gathered all of that data as well, and the idea was to promote those collaborations across different researchers at the university at first. So the idea was, for example, okay, we have people here in the Department of Government, let's say that they're working on the public health research, which is what I used to do. So where do they actually find the colleagues that are now knowledgeable about biotechnology and who exactly do they go and talk to? So we have then also expanded this project to MIT that had a similar challenge. So in there we have helped aggregate the data about professors at the School of Engineering as well as the Sloan School of Management. So the idea also was that uh, for the people, for the students that are working on the project across those two disciplines. And in technology and management, I mean almost all of you are in this field, it's very, very common. We always need the professors from both sides, people that understand both economics and technology. So we have also helped them just put this data together and get those new collaborations started. And so since then, we have also expanded to many other universities also in the United States, and so we have continued to aggregate this data about them. So basically problem one is semi-solved, and again, technologically, it's not actually very difficult, but so we now at least have all the data about the professors together in our database. Now what do we do with that? The next challenge, and that's what it looks like, uh, and this is our system, so basically it just shows you very easy research profiles. So now as part of the system, um, yeah, so then our second challenge is, well, how much money do they have at the moment? So because as we have been talking to people about some of the information that we have developed, some of the information that we have collected, so what we saw was, for example, sometimes let's say that we have this data on their publication. And there are a lot of uh, startups, there are a lot of established companies, I mean, local um, uh, hometown hero, ResearchGate, for example, is working a lot with the publication data. Now, this is wonderful, but in some cases, the professor has finished research project like five years ago. You know, it really has happened like back in the days, or maybe it was their PhD dissertation, right? And then it only now got published. 
is it really interesting to anyone? I mean, it's interesting to people, of course, you know, but is it actually helpful to the real projects that we're trying to jumpstart right now? And the answer is not always. So usually in the research ecosystem, we are often trying to get people at the time when they're still working on those projects. So what we have been trying to do was essentially identify people at this exact moment when they have the money. So we have created the database uh, but where we pull together the information uh, by about the federal funding in the United States, about all the professors in the US, by 22 different federal agencies. And so that has essentially helped us see, so in the, in the previous 10 years, who are the people in the United States that have had the money, how long do they have this money for, and what are they working on at this current moment? And so when we have this granular picture, so not just of the professor's like general research interest, not just of their publication, but also just we know which money they have, we know who has the most money in the field as well. So we would love to be able to use this information in order to really enable some of the collaborations as well between the academia and the industry. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really trying to do there is just help the universities. So they are very interested in producing research, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of the bureaucratic obstacles that they have to actually sharing this research with the companies on this end. And the companies are often interested in partnering with universities. They want to take this best technology. They want to develop this in the market. But then again, establishing this collaboration is often quite complicated. And just to give you an example of how complicated that is. So one of our partners at one of the very, very famous research universities near Boston, so it's in something called Tier 1 Research Institution, um, you know, which means it's research activity truly is top notch. And so the director of their Office for Technology Collaboration, so he's been very, very committed to his job. And the way he sees it is he basically has added information of 27,000 professors and 27,000 alumni of this university's personal LinkedIn database. And then every morning he comes to work, you know, he goes on around the labs, he personally sees like what is interesting, right? Then he thinks, ah, oh, this professor sounds great. And he just sends a personal message to somebody in his personal LinkedIn profile, okay? I mean, clearly he tries hard, clearly he's hard working, right? You know, we, and clearly he's well-intentioned, I really cannot deny him that. But again, my hope is that in order for the real technology translation to take place, we can find some ways to make this process more efficient and rely less on some of the personal connections that we have in the field or, you know, whoever this, this gentleman would just happen to text on LinkedIn one morning, but actually rely on some data about where do we actually have the most interesting research in a certain field. Mm -hmm. And so we see ourselves as a bridge that is actually working to connect the partners to advance the modern science. So we're trying to fulfill this niche in the collaboration between the universities as well as the companies. Mm -hmm. And then the third question is the trust. And so, because like I said, once we have the funding, so let's say the university does want to work with the company and always wonderful, um, the main question that we have there is just how do we make sure that we preserve the uh, integrity of this scientific research? And so here, once again, we are fortunate today to live in the era of new technologies that are, uh, that are emerging, you know, technologies around AI, around data analysis, but mostly here, I actually believe in the, in the promise of the blockchain as well. So because I think that in here, we have ample opportunities to take the data that is being produced by different researchers and just make sure that we actually collect all the data <laughs> instead of just the data that essentially supports a certain hypothesis and allows us to get published. And blockchain can allow us to basically create a really, really rigorous system of data collection, you know, hopefully make sure that our science has a higher ethical standard. 
And the other thing that we would like to do there is just make sure that the younger researchers, so maybe people that have just finished their PhD, would be judged on the level of their ideas, as opposed to on you know, the established value of their current name, right? Just so that they could fairly compete with the titans in the field. So that we could see what are some of the ideas that they currently have, what are some of the real results that they have, and then maybe slowly <laughs> the overall entire academic landscape can start changing. So that would certainly be our goal. And finally, uh, so my company has at this point a lot of experience working with the, uh, with the big American universities. So we have aggregate information about about 10,000 professors and 50,000 grants, and we have been working with students and with like all those wonderful famous universities. And I have actually also come to Berlin in April, so I have opened the subsidiary of the company here, and so I'm now starting to also explore the European uh, research ecosystem and just seeing how things are taking place here. And my understanding is Europe is wonderful, and there is also quite a lot of research funding and quite a lot of research taking place as well. But I think even around the data infrastructure, it also seems uh, that we have many of the same challenges that we have in the United States. And so here, for example, in many of the um, European funding moments, I see the challenges around even the languages, so like different countries distributing different grants. And so I feel like if we do have this goal of trying to really commercialize the science and really trying to bring it together on this continent so that we can really enable the full potential for its commercialization. Projects that help academics work together as well as help the academics work with the industry partners in a way that is filled with trust and integrity is quite important. Mm -hmm. And my challenge to people that are here today, so to the innovators in Berlin, uh, well, it's first of all just to choose worthy technology. So many of you here, it sounds like are still just figuring out what exactly to work on. And I would really want to encourage you to just try to grow this slice of just 5% of university research that ever goes anywhere, right? So think about all the research that is already coming out of the universities. Think about all the master's thesis, all the PhD thesis. I mean, there are people that have given years and years and years of their life to real hard science, people that have really been thinking about this very rigorously. And not many of them really want to then take their innovations and bring them to the market. So maybe you will be one of them. Um, and I feel like this is an overlooked potential of the modern science as well. And uh, especially for those of you that are innovators in Berlin today, I would really love to encourage you to do that. And then my second goal, uh, you know, as well as a personal goal, would just be trying to make it to the market faster. So I told you the story of my grandmother who was uh, sick with diabetes. And she was doing these insulin injections. But yet insulin is not a cure. It was only a way of managing her disease and essentially just prolonging her life. And what is very important to me in the world today, for example, is that we might actually already have the cure for the insulin that is coming out of some promising stem cell research that is happening in laboratories around the world. So my hope here is once we do actually have a cure for something as important as diabetes, my hope is that our generation will work to get it to the market faster so that it doesn't take 50 years, but so that we can help people that need it get it as soon as we can. So welcome to Berlin, and good luck to you, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Global's podcast series. Music and production by Dirk Jacobs and 52 Degrees North Studio.